Hear the word of the Lord this morning from the gospel according to John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 13. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Good morning, King's Chapel. Turn with me to the Gospel according to John. Verse by verse, over the next several months, our series has been entitled, The Invisible Made Visible. Philip said to Jesus, Show us God, show us the Father, And Jesus' response to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John's gospel account shows us this invisible creator, transcendent God has made himself known to us by taking on flesh, by taking on humanity. His name is Jesus, the second person of the one triune God. Today, we're back in chapter 1 in the prologue, verses 1 through 18. I want to just remind everybody that John is not John the Baptist. Um, He is John the Apostle. And we're going to look at John the Baptist, uh, not today, but uh, over the next couple of weeks, I think two more weeks from now, or three more weeks from now, we'll look at John. In fact, John the Apostle doesn't even call him John the Baptist. He is John the Witness. So we're going to spend uh, a, a whole Sunday morning looking at the witness of John the Baptist. But... Today we are in John 1, and I want to tell you that we are going to spend a few weeks, chapter 1 goes all the way down to verse 51, there's a lot in this chapter, we're going to spend several weeks looking at chapter 1 together, and then hopefully once we get through chapter 1, I want to take our time, and then we get into chapter 2, things I hope will be a little bit quicker, we'll pick up the pace a little bit and deal with more of the book, bigger pieces of scripture. Uh, This is John the Apostle, one of the twelve. He was divinely inspired by God to write us this gospel account somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D. Uh, Jesus told him in John 14, told John and the other apostles, he said that when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, when I send him, he will bring to mind all the things that I've taught you and bring to mind to remembrance all the things that I've said. And this is what we got. We got the gospel according to John as the Spirit was given, as John was moved along by the Spirit to give us this divinely account of the life of Christ. John, we know, is one of the closest of the 12 apostles. Many times throughout John's ministry, he took three of his closest uh, disciples with him. Mount of Transfiguration, the raising of a dead girl in Mark 5, we said, and also um, the third time was the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane as he faces the cross. The Gospel according to John, chapter 20, gives us the purpose of the book. He says, many signs were given in the presence of the disciples, of which I'm telling you about, that are not written in this book, but these things have been written, the count 
of John's gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says right away, it's apologetic. I'm giving you arguments and proving to you that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one and only Son of God. It's evangelistic, so if you're here this morning and you do not believe that, the purpose of this gospel account is so that you believe, that you trust in him. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this has been given to us to continually believing and, and cherishing and nourishing on Jesus through the power and presence of his spirit. The word believe is used 95 times. It's, it's the verb. It's, it's the trusting and an active, relational, ongoing trust in Jesus. That's what the book is all about. Just a couple of things. I want to just look at the first couple of verses again with you this morning and just point out a couple of things. So if you go to John's gospel, the gospel according to John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. I just want to remind you, John's looking back to creation. He's saying, in the beginning, in the origin of all things, before the universe began was the word. He was preexistent before all creation. The verb was, in the beginning was, is very important. Ami is describing a continuing action without a beginning and an end. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. I've always existed. Same verb. So in the beginning, before creation, was in eternity the Word. It wasn't created. He says it very plainly. And this Word was with God. It's face to face with God. He had distinction, but yet eternality with him. Co-equal, co-essence, but yet distinctive. He's the second person of the Trinity. We said Logos was important to the Jews. It revealed God's revelation, salvation, and creation. God spoke. God revealed himself through the words of the prophet. God um, healed by sending forth his word. So it's very important. The word Logos, the, the word word means Logos, important to the Jew. It was important to the Greeks because they had this philosophy that there was this logos, this, this governing principle of the universe. He, the logos is the essence of all things. And this, this logos in Greek philosophy had to do with holding all things together. He's, one philosopher said that there's chaos, there is, you know, um, uh, chaos, there's a flux, there's things going on in the world, but this Logos holds all things together. And John says, no, this Logos that we're talking about, this word, is the eternal word. Not only is he eternal, look what it says, in the beginning was the word, he existed, and the word was with God. He was face to face with God, intimacy, and the word was God. You see what it says in verse 1? So important. The word is eternal, the word is distinctive, and the word is God. Now, I didn't say this last week, but I want to just bring this up, uh, and we'll hit this quickly and we'll move forward. If you need more information, just email me during the week. The Greek translation of that verse, again, I'm not a Greek scholar, you can read it for yourself, is theos enhos logos, that's the Greek term. And a lot of Jehovah Witnesses and some other false um, uh, narratives, false gospels will teach you that Jesus is a created being, that Jesus is a God, they write. If you read the New World Translation, you open up John 1, it says, in the beginning was a small g God. And they say that the reason that should be interpreted that way is because God, Theos, does not have a definite article in front of it. And they're right, it doesn't. But if you know Greek grammar, the reason that it doesn't have a definite article is because it is trying to show us what the subject of the sentence is. Because it doesn't, the subject of the sentence is logos, 
Theos, God, and host, Logos. Logos is the subject. Theos is the predicate pointing to the nature of the subject. So you could almost say, not only and the word was God, but God was the word. So the predicate, God, shows forth the nature of the word. So they're wrong. That's Greek grammar. But rather than get into argument with them, you could bring that up if you'd like. Point out to them, look at their own Bible, and I love to do this too, and point to them that Jesus, verse 3, is the creator of all things, number one. We talked about that last week. But the other thing I want to show you is look at verse 6, 12, 13, and 18. If you're studying, if you're like the study type, you like this kind of stuff, same word, theos, without the definite article, same as verse 1, verse 6, 12, 13, and 18, all translated capital G. So within their own context, in their own Bible, they like to translate just one thing because it helps their theology rather than clearly what John is trying to say. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God, not a God. Verse 12, but all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not a God. So that's theos without the definite article, and they refuse to translate it in light of their own false, I'm going to be kind, way of of dealing with scripture so the word beginning was always existed the word was with god it was face to face it was distinctive but yet indivisible same nature and the word was god very important to understand that that john opens up pointing to the word and who the word is he's trying to show us and we're going to get through exactly who this word is as we know in chapter 1 verse 14 that it's the lord jesus christ that he came to us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, okay? So this morning, what I want to do is, I know that was long, we won't do that every Sunday, I promise, Um, but I want to look at this text under three headings, okay? When you find that right in the scripture. The first is the life that's in Christ. John makes it clear, the word is life. Also, the light, we're going to pick up this theme over and over in the gospel account, but here John introduces the light, of Christ, and finally the right that comes from Christ in chapter 1, verse 12. So that's where we are together, okay, family? Verse 1, verse 3. I don't know, this thing isn't working all that great. Okay. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, the Word, and without Him, the Word was not anything that was made. Verse 4, in Him was life. Just stop right there for a minute. Think about that. In him, the Logos, the word, was life. What does that mean? Is John pointing back to creation? That creation motif that he was speaking about in John 1.1? If you read creation account, you'll see that light and life come to this world that was once without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. And out of nothing, God creates the universe and gives it life. John is using this verse at verse 4 here to make a connection, I believe, between God the Creator, the Word Christ, self-existence, having life in themselves. You see, everything that's been created has become. We could say anything has become something. This become that, this, this has been created, comes from something, but God is. I I know that's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, but I want you to feel that. 
God just is. Permanent, eternal, non-changing being life. See, that's what, that's what is distinctive for us between creation and the creator, who is life himself. John MacArthur writes, the whole universe falls into the category of becoming because there was a point when it did not exist. Before existence, there was self-existence, eternal being, a source of life, God, pure, self-existent. John says, in him, in him was life. Most people viewpoint, if you talk to the the Big Bang and other people who have this idea of, of life, in our universe, they say that, you know, what, what matter and particles and energy came first and then life was created. Not so. Life here, John tells us, was in eternity. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made. In him was life. There is a sense that John is, and I want you to see this, there's a sense that John is looking back to creation and yet looking forward to eternal life. He talks about eternal life. We're going to get there like 36 times in this gospel account. But I think John is doing here is looking up and looking down. First, there's this broader sense of life in and of itself. It's because there is life in him, in the Logos. There is life in all of the universe, right? In all of the, anything on earth that has life is because of the Logos, this word. Look, life is not spoken as by him or through him, but just in him. All of life, some sense, in some way, what John is saying, all of life itself is because of the Logos, because of the word. In him was life. You could say it this way, in him was the ultimate reality of the universe. The ultimate reality of the universe is God, the creator, the sustainer, the giver of life, Logos, life itself. Webster defines ultimate reality as something that is the supreme, final, and fundamental power in all reality. Ultimate reality is the absolute nature of all things, that which is true, that which is real. We, in our culture, in our day, want to kick against that because we don't want to deal with absolute truths. Post-modernity, there is none. There's no way we can know what is real. There's no way that we can know what is real. There's nothing in which is a standard by which we may know ultimate reality. We want to be the ultimate decision makers of our own life, of our own destiny. Deepak Chopra, he's the new age guru, says in every moment you are co-creating your reality through your own thoughts, your intentions, your words, and your actions. How many saw the movie The Matrix? right? Physical reality isn't really there. If you can get your mind to transcend reality, man, you could dodge bullets and fly. You can do all kinds of things. You know, the Hebrews had a category for life and light. The Greeks understood it to be, again, that in which brings together in harmony things that are in flux. They bring together life and death. The Greeks understood Logos to bring good and evil, light and darkness, the gods and the humans together. It was the word that brought harmony for the Greeks. In the Hebrew, in the wisdom literature, in the five books of Moses, it was associated with Jehovah God, who is both light and life. And here John is picking up that Jesus is both life and light. He ties them together. Life and light in Christ, John 5, 26. For as the Father has life, 
in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. You see? The Father and the Son shares in this self-existing reality, ultimate reality, life of God. He's uncreated. He's never been created. He always existed. That's the word. The word then, what we could say is the word is not just a principle. He's not a principle. He's a living being, a source of life. He's saying the ultimate reality of the universe is alive. Original reality, ultimate reality, absolute reality, what is true, what is life itself, is a person. You say, why are you, what, what's, what's, why are you stressing that? Here's why. Here's the implications. You see, to be rid of creation, to not deal with ultimate reality, to get rid of the one who gives us life is to be rid of the creator. And to be rid of God leaves men to do whatever they want to do. No judgment, no accountability. All of us have this deep nagging in our own hearts about what is life. What is life about? What is the answers to my life? What am I? Who am I? Whose am I? Rather than seek the creator, ultimate reality, life itself, we deny his existence, Romans says. We suppress the truth. We seek and worship the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Now, now family, listen carefully. Denying our creator gives us the false narrative, the false ultimate reality that we are accountable to anyone, to no one. You see, the reason we deny it because it's because we want to admit and we want to think that we're not accountable. That's the American way, right? The old rugged uh, uh, individualism. I create my own reality. Nobody can tell me what to think. Nobody can tell me what I should do. I will be the ultimate one who decides that. The truth is John is saying that God created us, that God gave us life, that he is life. We belong to him. So whether or not you admit it, you're created in his image and likeness. Whether or not you want to give an account to him, anticipate it, it will happen. All things are made by him for him. He gives life to everything. And what we have is, and if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I do not have to respond i do not have to bow my knee to anyone that's a testimony of the rebellion of our hearts that's the that's the attitude and that's the deep rebellion the the idea that we will not acknowledge the reality that is in life we want to be our own gods and we'll see the word the logos the life and the light that come has been rejected Brings us to the next nuance I believe John is talking about. I said there was a dual meaning here. I think John is wonderfully and just beautifully bringing together that the word is eternal, all creation, all life belongs to him, verses one, two, and three. So he writes in verse four, pointing up to verse four. And then as he continues in verse five, six, and following, he's looking down at the new creation. So the same agent who is the creator of the universe, verse one, two, and three, is the same agent of the new creation, verse six and following. I think it's just a beautiful way of him looking up and looking down, looking at creation, looking at the new creation. We're going to talk about new creation today. But I think that's what he's talking about. And when he looks up, he sees creation, he sees life, he sees light. When he looks down, he sees life, eternal life. The life that's connected with the Logos, the life that's connected with Jesus. 
35 times he says life in the New Testament, uh, in this New Testament book. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that you may have life, Jesus said, and have it abundantly. 11.25, Jesus said to her, to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Family, eternal life does not begin when one dies. Okay? Maybe you've been taught that. That's not true. Eternal life begins when there is connection. We talk about eternal life. We're talking about living with Jesus. When there is connection, when you're being united with Jesus. It happens the moment a person exercises faith and has this new creation take place in their life. It is our current possession for those who have trusted Christ. John 3, whoever believes in his son has, present tense, eternal life, onward and continually, he already has it. The focus of eternal life is not our future. It's the current standing and union, intimacy, the mystical union we have with Christ, who is the life. The scriptures, in a, in a script, um, in just without question, links eternal life with Jesus. John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that you may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you see that, family? I want you to see that in verse 4. John is looking up to creation, to light and life, and looking down to the new creation who is light and life. Look at the light. In him was life. In him was life. Let me see if I can get that. Move it forward and see if it comes up. Okay, if you got your Bibles open. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this word, this logos, is the light and the life of men. Family, you can't separate those two. Just as the word was with God, you have life and light connected to one another. Okay, that's what he's saying. John, has a, again, has a dual purpose here. He's showing that life and light is a manifestation of divine life. In creation, remember God said, let there be. He spoke in the darkness and there was what? Light. Let there be light. And light overcame the darkness and and, and God began to create and speak his creation into this world. But you can't separate the two and I don't think it's meant to here. Life and light share the same essential properties. Same thing with God and the word. In him was life and the life was the light. Okay, you see that there? There's a connection between the two. Even in the Old Testament, Psalm 36, for you is the foundation of life, the psalmist writes. In your light, we see light. Psalm 56, 13. For you have delivered my soul from death that I may walk before God in light and life. You see the connection? Where there is eternal life, where there is life eternal, there is light. Jesus himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but, you know the verse, will have the light of life. See that? Light and life. Look at verse five down with me. This light, this life of light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? Shines in the darkness. The word shines is, is, a, is a, a present tense. It's continuing. The light of Jesus is continually shining. It cannot be overcome. That's what he's saying here. It never ends. I am the light of the world, he says. 
And what Jesus is doing, and I think what John is doing here, is showing us as we move into the gospel according to John and his account of the gospel, I think what he's doing is he is bringing in this, mo- this darkness motif that he talks about darkness being sin, rebellion, and, and, and separation from God. That's what darkness is, uh, sin and rebellion and judgment. Um, that, that's the picture of darkness in the New Testament. That's why John writes in chapter 3 that although the light has come, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You see, darkness and evil connected. And he says that the word over, it can't overcome it. Look at that in verse uh, 5 again. Shines in the darkness, darkness has not overcome it. Now, some of you have a translation that might say comprehend it. Overcome, comprehend, depending on your translation. I think the NIV might have appre- uh, comprehended. The Greek word is hard to translate. It's sort of like our word grasp. Okay? If you say to me, I grasp what you're saying. I, I, I understand. I comprehend. I get it. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I, I grasp what you're saying intellectually. That's one way of doing it. The other way of using the word grasp is to say, I grasped hold of you. I, I've held on to you. And that's another way of putting it. The first way of putting it uh, is that, you know, something that you have comprehended. Uh, look at verse 9 and 10. It says that when the light has come, ah, the world was made through, yet the world did not know him. So some people say, you know what? He's talking about the world did not know him. He's talking about did not comprehend it. Some other commentaries say, no, it has to do with grasping, it has to do with holding, because in John 12, Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Okay? But either way, the light is to function and to shine, and it opposes and dispels darkness. I mean, that's what light does. And by coming into the world, Jesus exposed the works of darkness. He exposes the world's darkness. Do you see the parable here? Do you see the, I should say, the paradox? Jesus, the Logos, is life. Every single thing exists and remains because of the Logos. But yet, the Bible teaches us clearly that we, even though he's light, even though he created us, we are dead, spiritually dead in our sins. In rebellion against God, we're in sin and we're in darkness, Ephesians 2. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. All of us lived in the passion of our sinful nature. We're by children, nature of wrath. We are, we are by nature children of wrath. But God in his mercy, his great love, he loves us even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. So we are dead and do not have life. We are in darkness and the light becomes our enemy. Man's dead in sin. Man needs a new life. John, again, is moving toward this new creation. And here's the deal. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, much to look at the news today and see that there's a lot of darkness everywhere. Hatred, violence, you know, selfishness, greed, pride, lust, bondage, death. Just chaos, complete and utter darkness and separation from God. It's everywhere. The human heart, apart from God, is in darkness. That's what the Bible teaches us. But God is light. He sends his light into the dark world. He sends the light into our dark hearts to reveal himself 
to us. But when we don't have the life and the light, we're afraid. We wage war against it. We seek to put the light out. But praise God, the light, the life is stronger than the darkness. The darkness is unable. It cannot overcome the light. And people, unfortunately, when the light exposes the corruption of their hearts, when light exposes the sins of our hearts, like cockroaches, we run from it and we try to hide from our evil deeds. That's verse 9. The true light has come to everyone. It came into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. The world is another term that John's going to use interchangeably with different context. Here, I think he's talking about all humanity. They came into the world in a sense of not just a physical world, but to everyone. And then I think John uses the nuance as well as the world did not know him. That world, we call it worldliness, call it the world. It's that, it's that system of thought and belief that's evil, that's set against God, that wants to do its own thing. And John says he came to everyone that he created and yet the world and its desires and its evil and its separation and its darkness wanted nothing to do with him. The picture is not welcoming him. Here he comes and the world's push him away. You're not welcome here. He was sent among us. He came to us. And what was our reception? Close our eyes. We don't want light. We don't want, we turn our back. We don't, don't shine that light in my face. I want to stay in the dark. There's a preacher, his name is Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the late pastor of the 10th Press Church. It's still running today in Philadelphia. He was in Ireland and he was preaching during World War II and there was a, a mandatory blackout in the land. They shut all the lights off because of the bombing going on by the Germans. And one evening while he was preaching in the dark, about 20 minutes into it, somebody by accident flipped on uh, uh, the main switch that turned on all the lights in the church and instantly and immediately people began to scurry and people began to be frantic and people began to, you know, commotion in the place like what's going on? And you can hear someone trying to speak over someone, whispering in a loud voice, grabbing somebody, what happened, what happened, why did he stop preaching? He was agitated, his friend explained to him the lights had come on accidentally. The man, of course, was blind. The only one in the auditorium who could not see the light. That's us. That's a picture of Judgment, that's the picture of darkness. That's the picture of our hearts separated from the light of Jesus that had come into the world. Think what John is saying here, family, for a moment. Think of how ironic and how crazy, if I can use that word, or irrational John is saying. John is saying, in the beginning, God the creator who sent his son to be light and to be life and the same ones in which he created and sustains and gives life says get away from me. Do not shine your light in my face. They scream get out of here. Turn off that light because we love our sin. I love my sin. People would rather embrace sin face eternal judgment, then receive God's gift of forgiveness. Not only Jesus came into the world and the world didn't know him, but look what it says, even his own rejected him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
We'll see this as we go through the gospel account. His family, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They wanted to, to uh, take him away, put him away. Religious leaders with this giant uh, and huge major protagonist in the gospel narrative over and over. They wanted him dead. But John does not want to say one group. That's why he says the world. And But yet even his own did not know him. So let me ask this question at this point. Is what the scripture says about light and life about darkness and light, about revealing sin by revealing Jesus to you. Is that to you this morning, right now, sitting here, is that to you a blessing? Are you saying amen? I was walking in darkness. I was walking in in sin. I was walking, doing my own thing. And then the light of God shone upon me. He revealed his marvelous, wonderful, glorious light and life to me, and I'm embracing it. Or are you here saying No, I still won't turn. I am still, don't want to be found. I'm still floundering and and walking around, lost without direction, but please don't talk to me about Jesus. My prayer is that when light is shining and the gospel is declared, you will see the glorious life and light of Christ, that he will ultimately destroy the deeds of darkness. He will ultimately and completely forgive you of all your sins so that you may walk in his light. Second Corinthians 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, blind to those who are perishing. In their case, Second Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded, see that? The minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory, the supreme value of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, that's the work of Jesus, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Family, that's what he, John is pointing to, the light and the life and the glory of Jesus. And he wants you to see that. Sin and Satan wants to keep you in the darkness. God alone can penetrate and defeat our darkness. God alone can forgive us of our sins. Now, when we talk about sin, I just, just want to hit this really quickly. Sin in the Bible is talk about a debt. You owe God a debt. Um, he has a moral obligation of his own creation. He owes creatures, and there's a debt in which we owe. The Bible talks about sin being lawlessness. That there is a sense where we just refuse to do what God wants us to do, and we refuse to respond to him, and we break his clear will for our life. But what John is getting to here when he's talking about sin, I think, is that sin and rebellion is an expression. It is, it's spoken of enmity. And I'll show you why. The Bible says that our hearts are driven by hostility toward God. You say, well, I'm not hostile. Do you love him? If you don't love him, he's not first place in your life. If you've not bowed your knee to the king of kings, God calls you an enemy, that you're at enmity with him. That's your, that's your position. That's where you're at. I'm just being honest. Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh, that which wants to do its own thing, its own reality, its own ultimate reality is enmity or hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world, again, is that system, that ultimate reality that pushes God out and says, I want to be my own person, make my own decision. I'm not bowing my knee to no one. He says, if that's where you're at, you're an enemy. You're an enmity with God. You've neglected and rejected God. One of the things about redemption and salvation and, and the Logos coming and dying for us is that there has been separation, there's been enmity, there's been hostility. That's why the Bible talks about reconciliation. That your sin, you're living in darkness, you've been separated from God. There's enmity, there's hostility. That's what salvation is all about. And that's what verse 12 is all about. The enmity is what is presupposed by the redeeming, reconciling work of Jesus. Look. There are those who reject the light, but there are those who what? Receive it. They recognize its healing. They recognize its forgiveness. They recognize that the light is good. Okay? I mean, you are, you are outside in darkness. Now you are the light. You are in the darkness of the kingdom of darkness, and now you're in the kingdom of light. There's been a, a, a transformation, a transition has taken place. You were in, you're outside the family of God, now you're in the family of God. Look what it says. But to all who receive him, contrast to the world who do not want him, his own that rejected him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The point that John is making is that this enmity and darkness, this hostility that rejects life, light has been re- reconciled. Through the work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that, isn't that the purpose of the gospel? John 20. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing, having life in his name. The word receive here to all who received him is the same Greek root word in verse 11 that says we're not welcoming you. This is the opposite. It's saying we are welcoming you. To those who welcome him, that's what he's saying. To those who are welcoming in, the contrast is clear. There's a sense of, of welcoming Christ into your life, not rejecting him. There's a sense of, instead of pushing him away and closing your eyes, there's a sense of opening your eyes and embracing and welcoming into your life as the light and the life and the savior of the world. That's what receiving means. Look what it says. Not only you received him, welcomed him, you believed in his name. Now, if you've never heard that term before, it doesn't mean just the name N-A-M-E, but it means the whole totality of the person, the character and the personhood of the one whose name you call upon, the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus. You believed in his name, in who he is. D.A. Carson writes, trust him completely, acknowledge his claims, and confess him with gratitude. That's what it means to receive him. And when those who receive him, look, he gave the right. He gave the right not power as some translations, but although there's truth to that, but he gave them the right, he gave them the ability, the status, the legitimacy and right to enjoy the privilege of being in covenant with God, being God's child. Look what it says. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. Now the Bible talks about God being the father of all people, there's a sense in which he provides for everyone, but that's not what John is talking about. When he talks about being a child of God, he's talking about it in the sense of responding in, this, in the response to Jesus, inviting him in, and this reconciling work of Christ has taken place. And now we cry out, as, as Paul says, Abba, 
Because we've been adopted into his family. We are now his child. He is our father. He is our dad. There's a relationship, the intimacy that Christ has made available through the work of the cross. That kind of child. A child that says, Dad, I'm home. That's what he means by children of God. And look what he says. It's a work of God. They were not born. Look, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John introduces the new birth. He's introducing the new creation. Everything he's been pointing to and starting with creation, now he gets to verse 13 and he says, born of God. John Nicodemus in John 3, we're going to learn about exactly what that means. But he says, you must be born of God. But look what he says. Not born of blood. That means not natural descent. You can't be born in the kingdom of God and become a child of God because you're mommy and daddy. That's what he means. It's not your heritage. It is not your ethnicity. It's not what your family, your parents, grandparents believe. It's not done that way. You can't be born of God that way. It's not of, it's not of blood. Look at number two. Nor are the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not something you decide. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not something you make a decision to do. Number three. Nor the will of man. The NIV or a husband's will pointing to the male headship and the procreation in the family. You can't make someone, right? You can't give birth to someone. All of a sudden, he's just born by that natural birth, and bam, you're a child of God. No, look what he says. You must be born of God. You see, family, receiving, believing, and becoming a child of God is not the result of natural desires, man-made systems, ingenuity, human intellect. It's not the will of man. Look what it says. It's the will of God. This new birth, this new creation is not the act of man, but the act and the power of God. I want you to notice in these verses the balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. There's a sense in which we must choose a call Come to Jesus, lay down your life, pick up his cross, choose to turn from your sin, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes, that's a decision we need to make. But look what it says about God's sovereignty. Those who believe in him were not born of human decision, but of God. The best way I could describe it is there's a real choice you need to make and that you're accountable for and that you're responsible for. And the decision and the reception of Christ into your life, being born anew, a born creation, the DNA of God in your life, if that happens in your life, yes, you received Christ, but it is an act and it is a, a, a response of yours in which God has destined and decided and has chosen before creation of the world. So both are true. There's human responsibility. You have a decision to make, but there's God's sovereign choice by his own grace. It's both are there. You can get caught up in fighting on one side or the other. You go right ahead. I, I don't want to join you. I'm just saying they're both real. And they're both clearly taught in here. So the best way, again, at the event that you make a real, willing, and responsible choice to receive Christ, all that he's done for you was the result of what God has determined to do for you by grace before the foundations of the world. Wayne Grudem, I, I mentioned this before. I, I'm pretty sure, but I just love this quote. He said, God causes all things that happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. 
exactly how God combines his providential control and our willing and significant choices, Scripture doesn't give us an explanation. Rather than deny one aspect or the other, we should accept both in attempt to be faithful to the teaching of the Scriptures. It's faith. It's recognizing that, you know, there are some things that you may not know and God is a little bit smarter than you. And he could figure those things out. So how does one come from deserving spiritual death and in darkness to come and believe and receive the Lord Jesus who is the life and light of the world? To breathe in the free gift of grace through Christ, born again, born from above, have the Holy Spirit implanted in our hearts, his DNA, Peter says his divine nature, uh, we are partakers of that. How does that happen? It is a gift of God. It is a work of God. It is a work of his spirit in a dark, sinful, broken, running away, running towards hell heart that says, yes, I receive, and God gives us by grace as a gift his spirit that dwells within us. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born anew. Putting your trust in Christ and getting and receiving his gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want our, we got two more minutes and I want to end our time and I want you to wrap your head around this. So pay attention, please. Two minutes. Why should you trust Christ? Why should you bow your knee to him as Lord and Savior of your life? The answer, John has been telling us. It's the gospel. Notice John saying that Jesus is life. Life itself. John says Jesus is light penetrating, illuminating, glorious ray of God. John says that, the Bible says in 1 John that there is no darkness in him. He is the light, he is the life. John says in in 1 verse 1 that he is what? Face to face with God. Co-eternal, in essence, indivisible, but with God intimately. He is life, he is light, and there is intimacy. Do you see the gospel? This logos, this word, this God who became man who was life, died, gave his life so that we can have life, right? This Logos, this word died on the cross. Life itself entered death so that you can have life. This Logos, this word who became man, who was light, yet for three hours hung on a cross on Calvary's hill, darkness came over the land so dark you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face, as the judgment and our, of our sins was poured out on him. He who was light entered the darkness so that you can have light. This Logos who is face-to-face intimacy, most beautiful and glorious loving relationship with the Father from all eternity cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this face-to-face relationship was for a moment broken as God the Father turned his back on Jesus as he took the raw sewage of our sin on his body. Our enmity, hostility, and hatred toward God that separated us from him was poured out on Jesus, causing his separation from the Father as he turned his face from his only begotten Son. Abandoned. By the Almighty. Jesus was forsaken. We deserve to be deserted. He was forsaken. We might be forgiven. Jesus, the life, the light, went through the darkness so that we can have life and light. He tasted death for all of us, Hebrews says. Family, that's the gospel. Life, 
light intimacy was snuffed out so that you can have life, light, and intimacy with God the Father. That's the gospel. That's the God. That's what becoming a child of God is all about. For our sake he made him to be no sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you trusted Christ? Have you received God's gift to you in the person and work of Jesus, his son? God sent his son into the world as life and light. God left his throne. God the son left his place in glory to come to be snuffed out so that you can have life. He went to the cross and gave his life. He went into the darkness so you can have light. And he lost that intimacy even for a moment so that you can have a relationship with God. Family, do you know that? If you don't, I pray that you will invite Christ, welcome him into your life as Lord of the universe and Savior of your sins. Turn from your sin means to turn from the ultimate reality of your own life, doing your own thing, running your own course, making your own decision, thinking that you are the ultimate one who makes everything happen and turn to the true ultimate reality, the Logos, who was the word, who became flesh, who died for you and rose for you. Let us worship him. Father, we are just, just, overwhelmed of the beauty of your son. Father, we are overwhelmed at the mercy and the grace of your son. Father, we are overwhelmed that we too were walking in darkness, wanting nothing to do with you until you shown us the light and the glory that's in Christ and the gospel. God, we pray as your children we would be encouraged and strengthened of your grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray for those who may be here today that has not ever trusted, relied upon, worshipped, believed on the perfect life, the ministry, the atoning death, the resurrection from the grave of the Logos, the Word, who is Jesus Christ. Father, let us worship you and continue to worship you and respond in a way that brings you glory and us joy.